It is good to be in Montreal. Amen. Is that what I heard? Okay. Yes. <laughs> wow. It's been quite a journey for us, and we are just thrilled that we can be a part of the Evangel family, that we have been invited to come and serve on the staff here and be a part of this community and part of this church. And just as way of introduction, let me just maybe tell you a little bit about ourselves and our family and our ministry journey and what brought us here, just so that you're a little more familiar with who we are as a family and, uh, and maybe what God has done in our life over the years. Uh, Janet and I have uh, been married 23 years, and uh, we were married uh, when I was on staff at a, a church in Orangeville, Ontario serving there as an associate pastor, got married, and before the end of our first year of marriage, we decided that we would uh, take our marriage and put it into a motorhome and uh, kind of see what that would do to the marriage. And we did that for 15 years, and we lived and worked for a ministry and traveled around North America sharing the gospel through uh, a drama presentation. And after 15 years of living in a furnished hallway, we decided that maybe God was doing something else in our lives. We lived in that uh, motorhome 10 months of the year. We were away from the house 10 months of the year. We were on the road homeschooling our kids. We would uh, laugh in that motorhome, do our schooling, eat, fight the whole bit all within that furnished hallway. So it was a very structured lifestyle, but a great time to build the family and, and just uh, see God do incredible things through the ministry that we are a part of. And in 2009, 2000, the end of 2008, we left that ministry. We said, God, what's next? And God opened up an opportunity for us to serve uh, as global workers for the Pentecostal Assemblies. And we moved to Thailand. And we developed a foundation called the Center Network. We used non-formal education as a tool to reach into the community and uh, bring education, use that as a tool to share the gospel in uh, Southeast Asia, primarily in Thailand to at-risk women and children, but mostly university students, and many of them at risk as well. And so God just gave us a, a great ministry there, but we felt like we outgrew what we were doing there. And we just said, God, open up a new opportunity for us in Thailand, expand the ministry, do what you need to do there, or, and this is what we prayed, or bring something good to us. And God brought us Montreal. Woo! God brought us Evangel. Yeehaw! So God brought us two good things, right? I grew up in Ottawa, so I'm a little bit familiar with Montreal. We used to travel here when we were teenagers um, to watch the Expos play. Remember them? So bring back the Expos. No. So we used to, so I'm a little familiar with the area growing up in Ottawa, uh, a little bit familiar with the culture, but I wouldn't claim to say that I am. So I am now in La Belle City. That's the extent of my French. We're going to learn it. We're going to take some lessons and try and engage ourselves in the community and in the culture. But we're thrilled to be here. So we're thankful for the invitation to come and serve as part of the team at Evangel. And it's just an incredible opportunity for us as a family to not only be here, but to be a part of a hundred years of foundation of what God is doing in this city and to be planted and strategically located where we are right in the heart of Montreal to share the gospel. So we're just thrilled to be a part of of evangel and part of the ministry here. We are going to mark it up this morning. We are in the book of Mark. We're chapter 15 
Um, when uh, Pastor Patty started putting together the preaching schedule a little while ago, just kind of threw it all in there. All right, here's this, Rob, this is when you're going to preach. This is what you're working on, Mark chapter 15. I thought, great. Of all the passages of Scripture that I battle with in my heart, it's Mark chapter 15, and I'll tell you why. I hate the kinds of injustice that we see in our world, that we see around us, and specifically, I hate the kind of injustice that I see in Mark chapter 15. And growing up, reading this passage of Scripture, it was always a challenge for me, and I could feel myself getting angry when I would read this Scripture, right? I could feel myself thinking, that's not the way it should be, and maybe Jesus should say something, and we should be able to stop this process and and find another way for salvation, and all those kinds of things when you're growing up and you're reading. And so oftentimes, you know what happened is I would skip this passage of Scripture when I was doing devotions or reading or just kind of going through things, because it had that irritation in my heart when I would read this passage of Scripture. I hate those kinds of injustices. I hate the mob mentality that dictates things and changes things and forces people to do things against their will and creates and fabricates stories and lies and all that kind of stuff that kind of swirls around. Those kinds of things just get under my skin. They irritate me. And that is Mark chapter 15, is it not? All this manipulation in behind the trial of Jesus. And so when I was given this passage of Scripture, I thought, great, okay, God, you're going to have to speak to my heart. You're going to have to allow me to get through this passage and understand the purpose of why the process happened the way it did. And so we're going to read Mark chapter 15 just so that we have some kind of a understanding of what we have in front of us. And um, then I'm going to give you some historical background. We're going to talk about it. Here it is, Mark 15, 1 through 15. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the chief teachers of the religious law, the entire high council, met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. Then the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at the time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release you this king of the Jews, Pilate asked, for he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priests stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call the king of Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The passage of Scripture can sometimes bring confusion into my heart when I read it. And sometimes when I 
I look at the opportunities that Jesus had to, to maybe take a different course or a different path. I wonder why the path chosen was such. When we look at the big picture where this comes to place in history, we can look at, at all of the old covenant and all of the promises and all of the prophecies for Christ and, 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 and for the Bible are all funneling down to this one specific point. You can kind of look at it as maybe an hourglass. When all of history is funneling down towards this one moment, this one change in time, and then spread out into the future. We look at the prophecies and we look at, at, at the scriptures and, and we look at the stories and, and the covenants with Abraham and all of those things that are swirling around in the spiritual realm are funneling down to a new opportunity and to a new covenant. The old covenant is passing through this moment of time in these next couple of scriptures and is going to turn into that new covenant and that new opportunity and that new church. We look at the old covenant where it says, thou shalt not murder, and the new covenant says, love your neighbor. The old says, thou shalt not murder, the new says, don't even hate. The old covenant would say, do not commit adultery, and the new covenant says, don't even think about it, live with righteousness and integrity and holiness. And all of that is funneling down in right around chapter 15 and 16 in the book of Mark. There's this intensity within the spiritual realm that's happening. In the spiritual realm, they understand this point in time. They understand the necessity in the evil realm. They understand the necessity of crucifying Jesus and destroying the Messiah and hoping that they can put an end to God's Son and the end to God's plan and bring against judgment in whatever manner they can. And so in the spiritual realm, there's a stirring. And all of the heavenly realm, because of this, they're stepping back and they're allowing it to happen. In the spiritual realm, they're stepping away. It even talks about the disciples scattering and all of the support, all of that, even in the spiritual realm, is taking a pause and stepping back. If we look at the historical elements, elements on, on a local level, in this timeline, we can see the, the, the whirlwind of confusion and the whirlwind of distraction that is happening even in that day and time. This passage of Scripture comes the Friday morning. It's the Passover week. There's been all kinds of, uh, of things that are happening that week. Only a few hours earlier, they had what we call the Last Supper, together breaking bread with the disciples. Shortly after that, Jesus was arrested in the garden. And this happens, this the, the beginning, uh, Mark 15, 1 starts just a few hours after Peter had denied Christ. And there's a pressure point that's coming. Not only in the spiritual realm, not only with all of history, history funneling into that moment, but also just in the disturbance of the local community. There's been local uprisings. There's been uh, rebellious riots against the Roman government. Rome is in power and they are dictating how things operate in Jerusalem and for the Israelites. And so in this moment in time, there, is, uh, there are rebellions that are coming against the Roman government. 
There are insurrections that are rising up. There are murders. There are, are, are challenges against them. And we see Barabbas was part of this and arrested and thrown into jail for murder and for trying to overthrow the Roman government. We've got the Israelites who have been oppressed by the Romans and who there is such a hatred for them. They've taken all their power and authority and they've removed it from them and all decisions on how they live and operate are coming through Rome. They're making the call. They're asking for the taxes. They're the one that are creating all of the situations. They're the one that are judging the right and the wrong. They're dictating it. And all of the religious leaders have been asked to, to kind of set their power down authority and just kind of listen and follow Rome. So there's a hatred there. There's an anguish there. And there's all of this that's swirling around when we come to Mark chapter 15 verse 1. It's a very, very unsettling time. And so we come to verse 1 and it says this early, very early in the morning, very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of the religious law all meet to discuss their next step. Now, Pilate, the judge for Rome, would pass judgment at sunup. So roughly around 6 a.m., give or take a, a few minutes. And so all of these people, all of these leaders had to come together prior to that to come up with some kind of a cause so that Pilate would be convinced that this man needs to be put to death. And so they gather together as early as 3 o'clock in the morning. They all come together and begin to discuss what are we going to do? What are we going to say? How are we going to man manipulate the system to get our way so that Jesus Christ could be crucified and it would be put on Rome's hand? They would take care of it for us. It says that the chief priests came, the elders came, the teachers of the law came, and the whole Sanhedrin came. Folks, that's a mob. That's a large group of people that are coming to plot against this one man. Can you see the disturbance? Can you just feel that anxiety that's happening all around them? The chief priests would come from the, the high priest family, so there would be many of them. The elders, they were all of the community leaders and judges in the area. So all of them would come, many, many people. The elders, the teachers of the law, those were the ones that would develop, teach, and apply the law. And the whole Sanhedrin would come. That was made up of 70 people plus the high priest. That's a mob. That's a whole lot of people that are coming at 3 o'clock in the morning to create a disturbance so that they can bring this man bound to Pilate and convince him that he needs to be put to death. So early in the morning they meet. And they come up with these charges. Rome had taken away their power. They could not judge Jesus. They wanted to put him to death because he claimed to be the Messiah. And they wanted to be able to do that within their own circles. They wanted to be able to justify it with who they were. But it was against Roman law. They could not do it. They were take, the power was taken from them. And so they had to create this charge. To say that he was God would mean nothing. To say that he was the Messiah would mean nothing to Pilate, to the Romans. The Romans had many, many gods. And to have someone come and say, this man thinks he's a god, well, that's okay. There are many gods that live amongst us that have come and gone before. That's not a big problem for the Romans. And so they created another lie that would come. They couldn't charge him with blasphemy, so they decided that they would call him the king of the Jews. 
to claim that he was king would catch Pilate's attention. Because he was claiming to be king, it was forcing Pilate to make a decision knowing that the only king that they served at that time was Caesar. And this would be an attack not only against Pilate, against his position, possibly against his life, but it would be an attack against Caesar. And this crowd knew that it would catch his attention. And so in verse 2, we see this mob of people that are coming very early in the morning. And they bring, bring Jesus bound before Pilate. And they ask, and Pilate asks this question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus simply says, you have said it. Are you the king of the Jews? It seems to funnel down into this question for Pilate. And when I see the injustice of this mob and of this crowd, it angers me. And this is where I have the battle and the trouble with this scripture is those things anger me. When I see the intensity of the crowd dictating the situations. I want Jesus to respond to Pilate. All of these accusations come against him. In verse 3, we see more accusations coming against Christ. The, leaders, the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes. Many crimes, many accusations coming against him. Aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. This is when I want Jesus to say something. When I'm reading through these scriptures, I know that he sees what's happening, and I know that he understands the situation. But in my heart of hearts, I want him to speak out for this injustice. I want him to say something like he said in Matthew where he said, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's, quieting those that were challenging him. Or I want him to maybe kneel down and draw in the sand as he did with that woman when they accused her and wanted to stone her. And he says, you know, whoever is without sin, you throw the first stone. He kneels down and writes in the sand and when he gets up, they're all gone. Or maybe when he met the woman at the well and he began to speak of her lifestyle and and remind her of things that are in her life that are not righteous and holy and pure. I wanted Jesus to do something like that at this moment so that the religious leaders and even Pilate would stand back and say, maybe this is the Messiah and maybe we better just set him free and allow him to be. And as a young person, when I would read through these things, I would say, Lord, wouldn't that have been better? Wouldn't that have shown them that you are the Messiah? Wouldn't that have allowed them to come with understanding and wisdom to realize that you are the true and the living God? And, and, and maybe we'd find another path for the forgiveness of sins. Maybe you could create another, another, another stream that would allow us to live with freedom and holiness and forgiveness. But that's not the plan that he created. The plan that he created that he, was that he would funnel through this point of time with these accusations, with this judgment against him, and that he would stay silent through the whole thing. 
And so we stand here at this point with the accusations coming against him. And Jesus opens not his mouth. It says that he made no reply. I wanted Jesus to reply because I needed the justification for this. I needed to somehow feel better about this process as it was playing out. But by staying silent, he's fulfilling prophecy. And so Barabbas is introduced to the story. And they want to bring him forward and they want to be able to set him free or they want to be able to give the crowd an option. And so they bring this murderous person before the crowd. And he becomes the focus. And for Pilate, Barabbas, he's the one that nobody wants loose. A murderer. Somebody who's causing problems for Rome. And so they've brought this person forward, the one that nobody wants loose, but for the Sanhedrin and for the religious leaders, Barabbas becomes that opportunity for them. That they can demand the crucifixion of Jesus by having this criminal set free. Then Pilate has no other choice and the manipulation continues throughout this whole process. And you have to remember the condition of the crowd. It's a very one-sided crowd. They bring Barabbas forward. They asked him to be released as a prisoner as usual. And in verse 9, they bring him forward. If we can bring up verse 9. Can we bring up the slide for verse 9? Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews, Pilate asked. For he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. And so now the crowd is being asked to make the decision. The crowd's being asked, who do you want me to release? Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Verse 11. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? It's a one-sided crowd. You have the Sanhedrin council there. You have the elders, the high priests. You have the leaders of the community. You probably have some of Barabbas' family and friends and some of the people that were in that uprising against Rome that are all gathered in that crowd. And we have to remember the disciples have stepped back. They have stepped back and they have scattered. They have run away. They're unsure of the truth of the scriptures. They're unsure of the fulfillment of the prophecies. They don't understand what it means to, to die and to be raised from the dead and to rebuild the temple in three days. And although they want to believe Jesus and although that they, they stand and they say that I will not fail you and I will not deny you and, and I'll drink this cup with you, even though they said all those things, Jesus knew the reality of it was is that they were going to back away at this moment in time and he was going to be left to stand as that lamb before the slaughter, standing there waiting for judgment, silent in his response. When I read through those passages and I see the manipulation, I get angered and stirred. This passage of scripture, it's like the forest for the trees, you know, when I read through it, I... 
I sometimes can't see the forest for the trees. And I asked God this week, I said, Lord, show me this scripture in a completely different perspective. So that when I'm reading through it, I'm not seeing the destruction through manipulation, but I'm seeing the hope through a willingness in your heart to complete the plan that was created. I know that when I read through this scripture, oftentimes, when I read through it, my filter can somewhat be clouded. All the deception in this chapter distracts me from the truth. It distracts me from the reality of the passage that says, because of this passage, because of the way that it is done, there will be healing and there will be salvation and there will be hope for a future and there will be opportunity for unity and holiness and righteousness. And oftentimes... I find, and isn't it the way, isn't it the way that the enemy works in our lives that he clouds our judgment? He clouds the things that are around us. He clouds our minds so that we don't see the truth that's in front of us. And oftentimes we find ourselves filtering with that crowd and being manipulated and moved by the crowd's mentality. That mob mentality will create a different personality in people. People will do things in a mob that they would never do by themselves. And oftentimes the enemy will cloud our judgment so that we don't even see the truths that are in front of us. And they'll take our focus off the things that God wants us to focus on. And so I said, Lord, bring this scripture to me in a different light. Allow me to read it to see the hope of salvation. Allow me to be able to realize that when they yelled crucify him, it was a means to an end to fulfill your plan that the prophecies would be fulfilled. The prophecy that speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus long before this form of torture, this form of crucifixion was even created. Allow me to see that when I read through Mark chapter 15, when they yell out, crucify him, that it was going to bring redemption and forgiveness of sin. When they handed him over, when Pilate handed him over in verse 15, all he was doing was trying to pacify the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas to them and ordered Jesus to be flogged. When I read the scriptures, I'm asking God, allow me to see that that time when you were whipped was the fulfillment of prophecy that would bring healing to our bodies, that by his stripes we are healed. And all too often I focus sometimes on the injustice that I see rather than understanding the plan that God has. And our judgment can be clouded. And oftentimes, isn't that the way for us? 
Sometimes we feel that all the things that surround us and that are battling against us are bringing destruction into our lives. And maybe there's a mob mob mentality that would come against you, maybe at school or at work or even in the church or in the community. And oftentimes we feel like we're standing alone and we don't understand the process and we don't understand the direction that God has for us. And we're looking for God to say something in our heart, in our life. But the best thing for us sometimes is for him to stand back and be silent so that the process that he has, the place, the plan that he has in place can be filtered out in our life. So that we can, on the other side, be stronger. On the other side, we can stand back and we can look at his faithfulness like we sang. So when we come through some of those trials, we can see God's presence in there, even though we may not have heard his voice. We've all been there. Our family went through a very difficult time years ago. And we could see what was happening, and we could, we could see a way out, and we could see a path, and we could see the injustice. And I remember praying about it one day. I was at a conference and I was so angered by what was happening. And I was just trying to find a way. And what can I say? And God, help me with this. And God said this to me. He says, I want you to stay quiet for three years. I don't want you to say anything. I don't want you to try and fix it. I don't want you to think that you need to have justification. Because oftentimes that's what it is, right? We're really not trying to fix the situation. We just want to be justified. See, I was right. See, you were wrong. Sometimes that's all it is. And God said, I want you to be quiet for three years. And in those three years, God was able to do a work in me that would change my perspective and change my heart and grow me and develop me so that I might be able to step forward in another situation with great leadership and great wisdom that would help somebody else to go through those things. So sometimes the silence is the best process of the best plan and the best path that God has for our lives. I want to encourage you today, just as the worship team comes, I want to encourage you today. Mark 15, I want you to read it maybe later today or tonight, with a perspective that shows the greatness of God, that shows the faithfulness of God. Maybe take a look at that whole passage with an understanding of of the things that are happening in your life and how God might have a path for you or a clear opportunity for you to grow. I'm thankful for the prophecies. I'm thankful for the fulfillment. I'm thankful that Jesus stood there and did what he did the way he did it so that we could have what we have today. So that we could look at the opportunities so that as we stand here as Evangel a hundred years in downtown Montreal, we can look at the opportunities that are around us, the injustices that happen to the different people groups and to the different communities. And maybe we can stand up as a voice of truth, of foundation that would say God is faithful and we want to stand with you and we want to love you and we want to be a, a, a part of this community in a way that would reveal Jesus. We did our best for five weeks to reveal Jesus by handing out water and granola bars. And there was media coverage and there there were phone calls and emails from all over Canada congratulating us. And that's an amazing thing you're doing. And you know what, folks? We were handing out water. It wasn't rocket science. It was just having a presence in the community to hand out water. And just a couple weeks ago, I stood at the back window as they were gathering to to prepare for the the pride parade. 
And I wondered, God, how can we bridge the gap there? How can we create an opportunity to love our community, to love our neighbors, to, to be able to build relationship that we could reveal Jesus? What could we do with those that are in our park on our front lawn every day? How can we reveal Jesus to them? This passage of Scripture set a foundation for us. It laid the path, it laid down the foundation that allows us not only to live with integrity and holiness and forgiveness and healing and all that, but it also laid a foundation where we can reveal Jesus. Where people can be comfortable in our church as we share and we love and we communicate together. Let me pray for you and encourage you today. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you have been faithful in our lives. I thank you for your scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to reveal in us your truths in a manner in which we can understand it so that we can grow, but also so that we can share your love and we can express it to the community. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, you lead us.